Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations. Their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Frederick Barker, a neurosurgeon from Boston, Massachusetts, who delivered the Drake History of Surgery Lecture at Clinical Congress 2023. His lecture, Pathologies of the Surgical Image in Modern American Popular Culture, begins with a sensational neuroscience case from the 19th century and pivots to sensational portrayals of surgeons in literature, film, and other media. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. I'm a neurosurgeon uh, with a long-standing interest in the history of surgery and neurosurgery in particular. And uh, so it's a great honor to be invited to give this talk. Um, Charlie Drake was one of the great heroes of the era when I was a resident uh, between in the uh, mid-1980s. And um, he was the fourth neurosurgeon to be president of the American College of Surgeons. And when I was a resident, uh, he was at the top of his game. He was invited to give the 50th anniversary uh, talk at the Mass General Neurosurgery Program uh, where I was a resident. And you know that game you play when you're a resident, uh, if you had to have your gallbladder out, how, who would you have do it? If you had a pituitary tumor, the very worst thing that can happen to a human being is a basilar tip aneurysm. And all the other things that could happen to you, there would be a discussion between residents about different surgeons. But if you had a basilar tip aneurysm, you would go to have Charlie Drake clip it. And you would go to London, Ontario, where there was really not much else going on except for Charlie Drake. And uh, now that I'm an acoustic neuroma surgeon myself, I can look at his papers from the 70s and see what he was able to do under loops. He was able to dissect the, these large tumors that they saw in those days off of the brain stem and put a silver clip on a side branch of the anterior inferior cerebellar artery, which was felt to be the cause of mortality uh, when acoustic neuroma operations went bad. So that's, that's really a skillful surgeon. And last year, the talk was about Charlie Drake, given by his son, who I just had dinner with uh, last week. Uh, and great memories of his father. It is a great talk if you have the opportunity to watch it on video. And some other people who have de delivered this lecture have been kind of um, tough, uh, imposing targets, like Tom Starzl talking about the history of liver transplantation a great friend of my father's, and Denton Cooley talking about the development of pediatric cardiac surgery. How are, how are you going to top these things, the, the son of the person that the lecture is named after? And I understand the value of uh, surgical role models because my father was a surgeon, certainly my role model, along with my mother and my father's two brothers, and one of whom was a surgeon and one of whom was a nephrologist. And I grew up uh, not just reading the How and Why Wonder Book of, of Human Anatomy, which my father had carefully labeled all the muscles, and which I took into nursery school and got the hook, actually, at show and tell. And the Ethicon knot tying manual that I started working on at age eight, and I, that was probably the last knot I tied in my life, was about age 25. And uh, role models like Louis Pasteur, uh, Salk, and Sabin, and the, the polio vaccine were a huge amount of uh, how I came to be who I am now. And so I understand the value of role models and uh, writing about them, talking about them, being proud of, of them. But that's not what we're going to do today. Um, I started out thinking about this, what is surgical history and why, why are we interested in it? Why would you take time out from a meeting where you could be learning new things uh, to hear somebody talk about old things? This is a standard introductory text of medical history. Uh, and in the last chapter, the author uh, got together 200 major articles from the beginning of this century uh, from four leading medical history journals and grouped them into five major topics, which were the chapters in the book. 
articles about healers, articles about patients, articles about diseases, discoveries and ideas, and articles about the relationship between medicine and society. And then I went to PubMed and did a search that was intended to get uh, to capture articles about surgical history. You can see the, the uh, exact search there on the right. And it turns out that the history of surgery is pretty different. We're about four times more interested in great surgeons of the past, where only one-tenth is interested in patients. And diseases, okay, if you count in operations, we're about tied. Discoveries and ideas, if you throw in surgical instruments, we're about tied. And medicine and society, we have only one-fifth as many articles. And if you look at the footnote there, of the great surgeons, only 1% are women. So it's a kind of a constricted view. It, not to say that this is not a good thing to be doing, but is there something that's outside the confines of this? And looking at the books about uh, surgical history, this one, as you see at the bottom there, is, is touted in 2018 as the most recent comprehensive conceptual, cultural, and social history of modern surgery. This was published more than 30 years ago. So why do we do this? Well, it's, it's really tempting to, to engage in a sort of a triumphalist uh, surgical history but that's a linear progress toward the perfection that we enjoy today. If you, if you look at the, at the left there, that is Cushing, Harvey Cushing and Victor Horsley's cases, survival after brain tumor craniotomy. And Horsley is there on the bottom. Uh, his patients, I'm sorry, you can't see my cursor. His patients didn't do so well. And then Cushing before electrosurgery came in in 1928 is this middle curve. And then Cushing after the Bovi, the electrosurgery came in is this top curve. So he was in fact getting better and better and better. And that makes it hard for us to look back at this cover illustration from that book I just showed. This is a 16th century uh, brain injury patient. And as a modern neurosurgeon, you look at this and you say, well, what, what's going on here? There's a facial palsy on this side this is, is this a third nerve palsy? Why is the pupil spared? Why is the lid not down? And worst of all, what's going to happen when that device drills its way into the superior sagittal sinus? And it, it's hard to disengage what we know from the present. And, and it, it's not that the person doing this was, was stupid or wasn't committed to the, the good of his patient, but they did the best they could with what they knew. And so if you look outside the confines of the talk about the great surgeon, what, what is there that opens up to us that we might uh, supplement it with? Not replace it, but supplement it. So what was surgery like for the average surgeon and the average patient in the past? How did that change over time? What was the practicing surgeon's relationship to society like in past days? Was there a surgical personality that we can recognize today? And what was the image of the surgeon in the society in which he practiced? And I, I'm not going to apologize for saying he, because most of them were male. What data sources exist to study these questions, some of which are a little bit intangible using the usual data sources that we think of today? So let's start with perhaps the most famous 19th century American surgical case, which was called the American Crowbar Case. This is Phineas Gage who was injured when a tamping iron in a railway accident. The, he was tamping down some gunpowder, which went off and blew this through the top of his head where it landed 100 feet away. And that case has just uh, gained in popularity. This is a Google Ngram viewer that shows us the frequency of the words Phineas Gage in all English printed books. It's, it's uh, cited more often than any other medical case from the American 19th century literature. Here's a picture of the uh, uh, tamping iron that was literally blown through his head, entering under the left zygoma and coming out here in the midline. This is his physician, John Harlow, who treated him in 1848 in, uh, in a small town near Burlington, Vermont. Uh, the patient was carried and walked to his lodgings. Uh, when Harlow arrived, Gage's brain was visibly pulsating uh, with the pulse, shaved the scalp, dressed the wound superficially, approximated the skin edges. But first, in a sort of a doubting Thomas move, he put his two fingers in the entry and the exit wound and demonstrated that they connected. And then they measured Gage for a coffin. To everybody's surprise, uh, Gage survived. So the treatment consisted at first of purgative medicines. So these are medicines that make you vomit. This is 
medical treatment that Hippocrates or Galen would have recognized. It's intended to evacuate the bad humors that are causing the inflammation from the brain injury. Later, when Gage developed a subgaleal abscess, it was drained, and he continued to have bleeding and purging throughout his course. Uh, here, two weeks after the injury, he developed what looks a lot like sepsis uh, to us with pain in the head and the face and was treated with therapeutic bleeding, venesection, purgatives, and cathartics, which made you have diarrhea, same, same sort of uh, philosophy behind all of these. And even when during convalescence, when he showed ill judgment and walked out in the rain without an overcoat and got a fever again, the same treatment uh, was applied, and he eventually got better and went home. Now, the data source that we have for this uh, is the American medical literature of the 19th century, which was gathered together by the Surgeon General's Library in Washington, who went through every American and foreign medical periodical and classified each, uh, each publication by the author's name and by what the article was about, so wounds and injuries of the brain. And I did what more or less was a systematic review. Um, I looked up every case that I could find uh, from 1810 to 1880. I got about 90, 95% of the cases. This took uh, five libraries and months uh, to years of uh, hand searching. I uh, limited to cases where an open brain wound was recognized, diagnosed within 24 hours of an injury, regular practitioners, so no homeopathic medicine, and information in sufficient detail to be worth uh, combining. And then these were the subject headings that I searched. Everything that I could think of that looked like Phineas Gage's injury. Here are the results. Uh, 324 articles, 185 actual cases by 163 authors, almost all with one case each. A few cases from urban hospitals, but almost all from rural physicians that uh, nobody today remembers or has ever heard of. The patients were predominantly male, uh, even more skewed than the wilderness population of the day, which was 2.5 to 1, male to female, almost all white, and a young population. Mechanisms of injury, gunshot, not surprisingly, uh, this is America at the top. Horse and mule kick, mostly in younger patients who would come up uh, to a horse from behind and have a problem, and then what you would expect, and a few spectacular uh, forms of injury, more circular saws maybe than you would think. And uh, when the physician arrived, uh, they would explore the wound. They would often call a consultant. They would sometimes use a trephine to remove additional bone. And Two-thirds of the patients survived, which suggests that a lot of cases probably went unreported, and there's a publication bias here. And a large number of physicians, when they were writing this up for publication, included their observations about the brain's movement, its sensation, and function. So this patient shows one of the trends over time, which was from the cruciate incision that was done in the 1860s and 70s, to this uh, flap, this skin flap incision that was done at a, an elective trephining later. And if you're a neurosurgeon and you're thinking this flap is upside down, you're part of the problem here. You're not part of the solution. I just have to look at what was done. The venous section that was seen in the early years of the series died away. Uh, moderate laxatives were substituted for these more explosive uh, poisons that were used earlier. Diet was increased. And plotting it out, uh, venesection, therapeutic bleeding, went from 90% of the cases to 10%, but it took 50 years. So that's two generations of physicians. So this is not that somebody read an article published by Louis in Paris that bleeding was no good. This took two medical generations for this to disappear. And granted, these were very severe cases when it was felt that if you were going to bleed anything, you were going to bleed this. And by the time Phineas Gage was treated, his, uh, his uh, treatment was already visibly old-fashioned with only 30% of physicians still adhering to it. This uh, change in practice happened much faster than the recommendations in the textbook. So by the time 50% of textbooks recommended venesection for brain injury was 1900, and the latest such recommendation was in 1912. Purgatives, uh, which were sort of a milder thing, uh, fell away more slowly. 
anesthesia, which you would think would come in very rapidly after its introduction in the 1840s, came in very slowly with only a third of the patients uh, having chloroform or other anesthetics at the end of the time. And in contrast, listerism, antiseptic bandages, carbolic acid, uh, were adopted very rapidly uh, in just 12 years in rural America. So what was it like for these doctors and patients? Well, the first problem if you had this injury was you weren't gonna see the doctor likely for a while. So here's a, first you had to send for the doctor. So here somebody had to send 31 miles to get the doctor and then he had to travel 31 miles to get back. Took 10 hours after the injury before he got there. And by then a local homeopathic physician might have already stuck his finger into the brain. 95% of physicians, as I mentioned, explored the wound and in the times uh, when they uh, decided to trephine, and really any severe case, they almost always involved a consultation with a colleague, often the doctor's brother or an older established physician. And they might have to send a long distance for trephining instruments, 25 miles for this surgeon, and 108 miles in Unionville, Maine, to Waldobor, the uh, nearest uh, population center for trephining instruments and a colleague who knew how to use them. What was the operating room? Well, rural districts were thought to be healthier than cities, so often a door would be laid on logs outside a forest cabin and the trephining would be done. Here's a surgeon who operated <clears throat> in a log cabin during a snowstorm while other inhabitants of the cabin came in and out looking for their spurs or their hat and snow blew onto the exposed brain. And this adventurous surgeon operated by the light of a roaring campfire having arrived after dark. Family, servants, or passers-by were pressed into servants uh, to assist with the operation as necessary. And here in McCook, Nebraska, Dr. Davis was lucky enough to be assisted by a locomotive engineer, Mr. Oyster, who showed by his cool nerve and good judgment that he would have been a success as a surgeon. The surgeon's uh, safety, own safety, was sometimes threatened. When A.C. Folsom was called to see an extensive cranial injury from a circular saw, this was not illustrated, but uh, sounds pretty bad from the report. He simply dressed the wound superficially in the rural area where the injury occurred and then have him removed to safer surroundings, by which I mean safer for the physician, a mile away before undertaking a full exploration. And when Dr. McCurdy's patient during an elective trephining for epilepsy stopped breathing under chloroform, his assistants, believing our occupation was gone quietly but rapidly, began to replace the instruments uh, to prepare for a rapid departure. And the, the surgeon's occupation was hazardous to himself uh, in real uh, life as well as in the uh, concerns of the last slide. One uh, surgeon trephined a colleague for traumatic epilepsy after a hatchet attack while he was attempting to collect his bill. And another surgeon was thrown from his horse and his fatal open brain injury became the, sub the substance of his colleague's case report. What did they see? Well, almost by definition of how the cases were uh, gathered, they saw a brain uh, exuding from an open wound. Uh, and they were sometimes struck by the fact that you could lose seemingly a considerable amount of brain substance without impairment of neurological function. So this is well before Broca's cerebral localization when the doctrine was that large parts of the brain could be uh, lost without impairing neurological function. And two patients, it was felt, were smarter after the accident. <laughs> Sixteen surgeons described brain pulsations and three uh, felt explicitly that the pulsations were stronger during mental activity. And this is the thinking behind how we treated aneurysms uh, when I was a resident. We put them in a dark room, we closed the door, limited visitors, and, and uh, cautioned the visitors not to say anything that might upset the patient. And this really doesn't happen in 2023, where the surgeon put their finger into the brain and the dura contracted around the finger. I call this the Kingfisher syndrome, and there are a number of uh, cases of this. This is a syndrome where the patient is injured in the middle of a sentence and then suddenly mute. And then when a surgeon relieves the pressure many years later, uh, the uh, muteness is alleviated and the patient resumes the sentence that they were saying when they were injured. So the first patient, this happened while he was uh, shooting a kingfisher. And uh, when the uh, ball missed and went into the patient instead, uh, it had to be 15 years before it was extracted when he finished his sentence. 
And one patient could remember his life before the accident after the trephining, but not the intervening years or his wife, which seems maybe a little convenient to be true. And this is clearly the conceptual framework for later craniotomies for children born with microcephaly or uh, synostosis, or the general paresis of the insane that happened from tertiary syphilis when decompressive craniectomies were done really for no apparent reason unless you consider these cases. What about the surgical personality? Many of you have probably seen this two-minute uh, comedy on YouTube where the brain surgeon comes to the party and no matter what anybody else does, he says, well, it's not exactly brain surgery, is it? Are, the sur are all successful surgeons like Mr. Oyster with the good judgment? Uh, for description of this, we're usually dependent on the biographies written by colleagues and friends of the surgeon, which may not be entirely reliable. But in the early, early 20th century, at conferences like this one, oral discussions of presented papers were commonly recorded and published in the transactions of the society which gives us a pretty straight window onto the personality of the commenters. So finding these discussions uh, had to be done by brute force. So I found, um, I, I looked for uh, well-known uh, uh, groups like the American Surgical Association, the American Neurological Association, and searched their publications. I went through the biographies of the famous neurosurgeons of the day and saw what medical meetings they presented at. If they presented at the AMA, often those sections uh, were published, or the Southern Surgical, uh, or the Journal of Ner Nervous and Mental Disease published the transactions of the Boston Society for Neurology and Psychiatry, which still exists today. And then I graded each comment uh, as to whether it was supportive, so good paper, great paper, plus two, uh, interesting paper is a zero. I disagree with what you say is uh, minus one, and strongly disagree is a minus two. And I found 52 discussions by Harvey Cushing and eight by Walter Dandy. Um, Cushing used his discussions to establish his own priority or larger personal series. So here, discussing a single acoustic neuroma reported by the hapless Dr. Cadwallader, Dr. Cushing said he could subscribe fully to everything Dr. Cadwallader had said about his one case. His own series was 45 verified tumors, and then he had a lot to say about what he thought. Graphing the supportiveness of Cushing's comments out by age, when Cushing was a young man, he generally praised the speaker. In middle age, he usually had criticism for the speaker, and then in older age, he returned to a more supportive, positive comment style. Compare Walter Dandy, whose comments were more than half the time strongly negative, which is, for those who are interested, a statistically significant difference. He had few recorded discussions and only on topics of special interest to him, generally sharply critical. For instance, in 1930, he told a presenter that there were no cases of hydrocephalus in which one could not demonstrate with the naked eye a very gross lesion causing the obstruction. Dr. Harrop could maybe comment on this. If the discectomy operation is done properly, I do not think a disc can recur. Is that true in 2023, Jim? And here, uh, Dr. H had presented some photographs that Penfield thought was a very interesting uh, suggestion. Dandy thought the photographs were very misleading. There isn't the slightest chance that this conception can have any merit. The cause of hydrocephalus can easily be shown in every case, and, and poor Dr. H. Uh, thought that attitude was unpardonable and that Dr. Dandy, by sticking a piece of meat into the foramen of Monroe, had caused reactive phenomena. Cushing, uh, Cushing's, um, say, uh, uncordial relationship with Walter Dandy is well known. Dandy's major advance in the early 1920s of ventriculography, Cushing felt was dangerous and felt that Dandy had been overenthusiastic about the procedure and not frank and forthright about the risks. And in his enthusiasm, he had led many to believe that a shortcut has been discovered and all patients should be subjected to it. Dandy's sort of backhanded reply was that if one was just operating on pituitary tumors like Dr. Cushing or those that are self-localizing, of course, you wouldn't need his technique because it would be very easy for you. And after Cushing died, when uh, his assistant, Gilbert Horax, said, I do feel that one must not forget the contribution which Cushing made, Dandy thought that, well, Cushing's technique of a subtotal resection where the uh, capsule was not dissected away from the brain stem 
in Cushing's uh, not-so-skilled hands was a very wise one. There was no question about that. So that's what people's colleagues thought about them or how they acted around other surgeons. Uh, how did they act around the general public and what did the general public think of them? And I thought, well, this will be easy. This, this uh, novel had just recently been published by Ian McEwen, a major author with a neurosurgeon as the protagonist and detailed insight into his thoughts. And I thought, well, I'll just look up a bunch of these on Amazon and buy them and read them and I'll be ready by the AANS meeting and I'll have my talk. Well, I found there were 1,203 uh, books on this used book exchange, Abe Books, which I still use uh, today. Um, but there weren't any books like what I was looking for, and instead there were books like this. Uh, those of you who are uh, old as me or thereabouts may remember Eric Siegel as the author of Love Story, a sort of a schmaltzy story where there's a love between a man and a woman and the, the woman dies of, I think, leukemia. And it kind of looks like Eric is up to his old tricks here because the Matthew Hiller, a brilliant neurosurgeon, has to operate on his ex-lover, Sylvia, who is now married to one of the richest men in the world. So that's, that's not really what I was looking for, but Articles and books like that are just kind of bursting out of the Amazon and Abe books at the seams. And, and uh, you've got the surgeon she's been waiting for, another surgeon worth waiting for, a lot of waiting for surgeons. Usually it's waiting for anesthesiologists, it seems like <laughs> to me. Surgeon's second chance uh, for love of a surgeon. And so I changed my topic to Dr. Irresistible. And uh, I've never yet met a neurosurgeon, I'd, maybe general surgeons read these all the time, but uh, I've never yet met a neurosurgeon who will admit to having read a romance novel. What are they? Uh, what makes them tick? So this is the, the first real serious academic study of the romance novel. A romance novel is a work of prose fiction that tells the story of the courtship and betrothal of one or more heroines. And these are the typical sort of folktale plots. The one that we're going to see the most is Beauty and the Beast, where the man starts out as sort of a rough, untamed person and has to be uh, brought into conformance with society in order to get married. And there are eight narrative elements of the romance novel, and you don't have to go through very many of these before you find that th these are iron laws. These are things that have to happen in the romance novel. The hero and the heroine have to meet. And also, this kind of covers the Hallmark uh, Christmas movie. Attraction, a barrier, uh, a point where it seems like nothing is ever going to come right, recognition of the attraction, declaration, betrothal. And a happily ever after uh, ending is required in the romance novel. And if you think you haven't read one, you probably have, because Jane Austen's novels all adhere very strictly to this framework. Jane Austen's novels are romance novels. If you think of Pride and Prejudice, the heroine uh, Liz Bennett meets the uh, eventual hero Fitzwilliam Dar Darcy, who uh, at the beginning of the book is a very uh, prideful, offensive, and rich person who offends her uh, seriously at their first meeting, and it takes most of the book for that uh, to go away. We'll also mention a few books in this romance-adjacent genre. This used to be called Chick Lit, but now is called Contemporary Women's Fiction. And here the rule... I don't make this stuff up, okay? Here the rules are relaxed a little bit. There does not have to be a wedding at the end, but things have to be looking better, at least. And uh, there should be a life change and personal growth. This is the definition of the Romance Writers of America. And of course, the prototypical uh, book in this genre is Bridget Jones's Diary and its sequels and the movies. And this is currently the best-selling one in which the heroine is a uh, surgical resident. You think these are just things that you see thrown away at the airport, but this is the bulk of American fiction paperback sales. Okay, 33% of all mass market paperbacks, that's not just fiction, are romance. It's over a billion dollars a year, growing rapidly, 39 million books a year. 90% of authors are women. The men who write them usually write under a female pseudonym. Most readers are women. Most readers read at least one per week. And they come in different flavors. This is the historical romance where usually during the Regency period, where there is a duke who has been misbehaving his whole life, who has to brought, be brought into conformity. This is a paran paranormal romance novel, which I wasn't expecting. Uh, in this, you can tell it's a paranormal novel because the woman is wearing leather. 
That is the code on the cover. She is also on fire, and the hero will be a vampire or a werewolf. Here, the intrigue romance novel, sort of bordering on a James Bond situation, but always uh, with a woman who needs to be protected or rescued. And then uh, what we're going to pay attention to now, the medical romance. And there's a ton of these. Uh, and this romantic fiction site, there are 508 books just that have surgeon in the title, let alone have a surgeon as, as the uh, protagonist or hero. Looking at the most recent 100 romance novels published by the major American publisher, which is Harlequin, uh, Surgeon is by far the number one uh, subspecialty of physician, up from 24% in 2007. And this uh, upsurge in personality happened, this, this is the, uh, all copies of Harlequin or Mills and Boone books on A books by year of publication with whether or not they have a surgeon in the title and it really swung up here when Ben Casey, the neurosurgeon, this sort of sultry, uh, brooding-looking uh, gentleman, was on TV during 1961 and 66. And then there's been a second upswing during the popularity of modern uh, TV shows. Why surgeons? So in medical romance novels, the hero and the heroine adhere to a code in which works takes precedence, and so they're thrown together in a work setting. The results of treatment in these books is always unrealistically successful, just like cardiac uh, resuscitation on TV shows, medical uh, romance operations work, operations are successful, patients are compliant, decision-making is uncomplicated and, and paternalistic. And surgery thus offers the potential for a dramatic clinical situation in which both the hero and the heroine can demonstrate decisive action and outcomes are good. So what is the surgical personality in these books? I told you it was Beauty and the Beast, and some of you will not be surprised to find that all heart surgeons are bastards. <laughs> Conway is no exception, taming the beastly MD. What a cardiac surgeon is doing in the pathology lab, somebody's going to have to explain to me. Maybe it's a heart tumor, I don't know. But maybe that's why he's angry. But it turns out there are a lot of surgeons out there who need to be tamed, um, starting with this Navy doc, the doctor she should resist, rebel surgeon, brooding surgeon, redeeming that, that, that got cut off. That's another brooder. Here's another brooding heart surgeon. And this one, you think these are things of the past. This one isn't even published yet. The cover illustration isn't available. It'll come out next week. And after taming, the surgeon uh, is recognizable but changed. Um, here, the heroine brings him uh, as her trophy to a party where she flicks her diamond-encrusted wedding band just right. And when they say, where is your husband? He never strays far. The poor man is utterly smitten by me and by my child Tanner, too, of course, she added. He shares in Tanner's care 50-50. Yeah, I even changed the poopy ones, he said arrogantly, to the surprise of the uh, onlooking women. He's an amazing guy, my husband. And you have to say, in, in romance novels, a miracle on the cover means a baby. And there are a lot of baby surprises, unexpected families, surprise twins. And this gentleman certainly looks surprised by this news. <laughs> and it, you have to wonder if, if there's a gap in the education of these surgeons. Do they really know where babies come from? As I said, the surgeon's work is necessary for everyone to live happily ever after, and it's common for the hero to have to operate on the heroine's brother or sister, her child, but often by another man, always by another man, or a romantic rival. And a successful operation is needed to achieve the happy ending, even in the romantic rival. This woman brings her uh, son to her ex-husband's uh, care and is happy to see that his hands were calm, the hands of a neurosurgeon, and no ring. The surgeon serves as an economic resource in these books. So feminist critics in the 1970s and 80s uh, noticed that the plot structure underlying these novels is always a transfer of economic resources from the hero to the heroine. The hero begins with social standing or wealth that is acquired by the heroine when they unite at the end of the book. And uh, of course, that's the plot line in Pride and Prejudice, right? She changes her opinion about Darcy when she sees his estate, Pemberley, a classic. And it, you often see that even on the cover of the book where the surgeon is seen giving uh, the heroine an expensive gift. These books uh, love, uh, there's no boundary in these books. And things that are uh, norms in, in real life are, are 
commonly trampled on in romance novels, so that the male surgeon often becomes involved with an employee or a female trainee, like poor neurosurgeon Grant Hudson here, who is hot and bothered about the new co-ed changing room with the expected results. And a lot of books about surgeon bosses uh, who are off limits, but turn out not to be before the end of the book. Operating on the heroin. Now, this is something you don't see often in modern life. This, this poor surgeon here had the misfortune to run this lady over with his car, and she's paralyzed from the uh, waist down. And even though it's not his specialty, again, Jim, this, where were you when, when we needed you here? Even though this isn't his particular operation, he knows that he's the only one who can do it. And not just that, but he has to give up his fiancée because does he owe Janie more? And needless to say, he does. Um, and in fact, there's only two ways it can go, at least for brain tumors, uh, when the surgeon operates on the heroin. And in one, this woman who's been told by her doctor that she has a hopeless brain tumor, take a cruise around the world, sell your home, which she does. She meets this mysterious man who the reader doesn't learn is the world's most famous neurosurgeon until she slips into a coma right outside the port of Los Angeles where they get off the boat. He operates on her. The previously untreatable tumor is cured and they get married. The alternative, uh, of course, is death. The surgeon's personality can act as the necessary barrier that, at the beginning of the book. So the Fitzwilliam Darcy, the, the stuck-up, snotty, rich uh, person, we're going to show two uh, retellings of Pride and Prejudice. Here in the first one, Darcy is a man, he's the neurosurgeon, and uh, the heroine, Liz, overhears his assessment of her appearance. Someone told me Liz is single too. I suppose it would be unchivalrous for me to say I'm not surprised. Unless you think that that's just a plot device where the male is the insufferable one, in this retelling, the female, the heroine, is the neurosurgeon who is richer, uh, more highly educated than the hero who is a caterer. She must operate on the hero's sister to save her life. Uh, that's how they meet. And at a uh, fundraiser for the sister, she spills the hero's rice the first time they meet and refuses to help clean up. Do you have any idea what these hands are worth? I'm a surgeon. The surgeon can be a coercive figure. Here, Opal Mehta is a high school student whose family expects her to get into Harvard and has plotted her life out for her. The heroine's father is a neurosurgeon, as was the author's father in real life. And when the dean of admissions asks her, what do you do for fun, she doesn't have an answer. Her father reads A for admission and begins drinking Red Bull and listening to rap music and plans successfully for Opal to get kissed as part of the plan to get into Harvard. And here, really, this is the end of the road uh, at, at present, and not a good one. Uh, heroine Lily Bloom is married at the beginning of this first book to a physically abusive neurosurgeon, Ryle, who beats her, uh, who we meet uh, as he kicks a chair in anger after losing a pediatric patient to a gunshot wound. His explanation, the only thing I want out of life is success, lots of it, anyone can have children, anyone can get married, but not everyone can be a neurosurgeon. I get a lot of pride out of that. When you learn that Lily's ex-boyfriend, Atlas, is in the wings, of course, it becomes very clear there are no surprises in romance novels. And if the ex-boyfriend is named Atlas and the abusive husband is named Ryle, as in riled up, I think uh, it's pretty clear-cut what's going to happen. And this is one of the world's top sellers right now. Uh, I photographed these in, on the table in Rizzoli in the Galleria in Milan, one of the world's most stylish uh, shopping centers. This is the Boston airport about a week ago. These have sold something like four million copies. So is there hope for the neurosurgeon? Um, well, female neurosurgeons are on the way. So uh, when the woman is a neurosurgeon, and it, it wasn't until 2010 that I was able to find the first published romance novel, straight romance novel, in which the woman is a neurosurgeon. There was a lesbian romance novel in 2004. But when the woman is a neurosurgeon, what, is the, what does the man do was my question. Well, he's a cardiac surgeon, a pro quarterback, a rock star, a bodyguard, or a thug. <laughs> when he's a man, when the neurosurgeon is still a man or the surgeon, uh, it turns out that he may be a king or a prince or a sheikh. There are a lot of sheikh surgeons, actually. Desert king, Dr. Daddy, or he's a billionaire leaving my billionaire surgeon, her billionaire surgeon, 
a lot of billionaire doctors. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that at the end of the book, when the happy couple uh, becomes united, uh, oh Hudson, I love you too, really, I have to ask, how rich are you? 168 million, last I checked. Does it bother you? I'll give it all to charity. We can live in a little house. What this does, being, an, being a prince or a king or a billionaire, allows the surgeon to quit surgery. So just like in Dark Victory with Betty Davis back in the 1930s, the surgeon leaves clinical surgery and becomes a pediatrician or a researcher or simply retires so that he can devote full time to his new family. Another aspect of the surgical personality that we don't see as much of in the romance novel is detached concern. So here in, uh, this is the author of Moby Dick, Melville, his book about a man of war, White Jacket, uh, preceding Moby Dick and less successful, the ship's surgeon with a kind of a strange name, foremost surgeon in the Navy, surrounded by moans and shrieks, by features distorted with anguish inflicted by himself, he maintained a countenance almost su supernaturally calm the reason be that he was making observations on the physiology, his apparent heartlessness was as of a scientific origin. And he had a collection of uh, bottled specimens that he kept in his ship's cabin that other people were afraid to go near. Surgery as experimentation, of course, the indigent patients in the 19th century feared that they would be used for experiments by young surgeons like Duchenne here, working on the uh, electrical basis of facial expression or that after death they might be dissected for use in the anatomy lab. But do we actually see surgeons as mad scientists? Well, here is a newspaper clipping from the London Daily Telegraph uh, that William Osler sent to Harvey Cushing in 1912. And it's a straight up account of Harvey Cushing transplanting a brain. The actual operation was a pituitary transplant with a stillborn, uh, I guess you could say fetal donor, of the uh, pituitary, and it was simply put into an incision in the patient's temporal lobe, which is remarkable enough for its day. But the newspaper description, a, patient of the, a portion of the patient's brain was decayed, a child died of inanition. Dr. Curry Cushing hurried to remove the brain, with great care took out the patient's entire brain, which, as always, could be seen to pulsate with each heartbeat. While he was severing the disease section, another surgeon was transplanting the infant's brain, Afterward, the entire brain was restored to its proper place and the patient was reported as improving. Well, the patient died actually, uh, and this work was based on Cushing's uh, pituitary transplantation in dogs following the model of uh, his role model, Halstead's parathyroid work with parathyroidectomies in dogs with autografts and allografts, or feeding or use of parathyroid extracts, all of which uh, Cushing explored with the pituitary. But the improvement was temporary, and as far as is known, he never did another human case. But the idea that you could transplant a brain was floating around uh, for some period of time, long before the 20th century. In the 16th century, a patient requested a brain transplant from Ambroise Paré, shown here. We did many things to him, but it was impossible for us to restore his brain. And I wish I had the details on that case. Uh, Swift, Gulliver's Travels, proposed taking, say, Republicans and Democrats, sawing their heads in half and swapping the two halves to get uh, turned two radicals into moderates. But by 1931, if you talked about brain transplants, you were talking about the new James Whale movie, Frankenstein, with Boris Karloff as the monster where use of an abnormal brain in the monster's construction was critical in explaining uh, its uh, antisocial behavior. But the book, as written by Mary Shelley, and for uh, almost 150 years afterward, uh, had no mention of a brain transplant. So her original publication in 1818, the source of the brain wasn't specified. There was very little detail about how the monster was put together. And these uh, versions, most of which were on the stage, a very successful Victorian stage comedy, and then this 1910 Edison film in which the monster was cooked up in a vat of chemicals, none of them had a brain transplant. But only after, between 1915 and 1930, when neurosurgery was starting to crop up in the daily newspaper, did a transplant become part of the story. And 
this uh, Peggy Webling wrote the stage play adopted by Balderston and then filmed by Whale with Karloff in the starring role. Jack Pierce here, the makeup artist, took four hours every day to uh, put Karloff into this uh, contraption, which very prominently featured uh, the place where the top of the head could be taken off and put back and the brain put in. And as we all know from watching Young Frankenstein, the abnormal brain was selected by the incompetent uh, assistant with predictable results. And a brain transplantation turned into the most common activity of the mad scientist for about 15 years, with more brain transplants being performed than man-animal hybrids, the pursuit of invisibility, or the nurture of giant carnivorous plants. And the London Times took uh, notice of this uh, critically. Very rarely is the intention of a movie surgeon to save life or effect a cure of a malignant disease. The intent is the creation of a monster who will be employed to stalk the, stalk the heroine, most likely in a graveyard. The blacker the heart of the surgeon, the more fastidious he is likely to be in his professional methods. So in the, in the public eye at this point, the neurosurgeon, certainly and largely the surgeon, was Harvey Cushing. So Samuel Greenblatt uh, tabulated Cushing's appearances in the New York Times, and he had a lot of things going for him here. Uh, besides being a famous surgeon with remarkable accomplishments, his daughter also married uh, Delano Roosevelt's son during this same uh, period of time. And, and then, of course, he died, uh, provoking a, boast of, uh, a boost in his uh, H index, I guess you would say. But the sequels that were made during this time, the creator of the monster became more and more close to a neurosurgeon. So in the original movie, he had simply been a university student uh, who left the university to go to his castle. Then in the first sequel, he becomes a physician. That would be Bride of Frankenstein, which we'll see pictures from him in a minute. By 1939, son of Frankenstein, he measures the monster's basal metabolic rate thinks that the monster is definitely hyperpituitary, accounting for his great size, reflecting Harvey Cushing's pituitary interests here. And by 1942, he's a fully qualified neurosurgeon, first seen in the movie removing his gloves after removing a patient's brain, subjecting it to surgery to, uh, to treat the frontal lobes, and replacing it again in order to cure schizophrenia, in plain English, a lobotomy, and multiple brain transplants ensue. In the 1950s, of course, it was just serendipity that the actor playing the doctor was actually named Cushing. But brain transplantation was always prominently featured, sometimes uh, to excess in these movies, where it became hard to tell whose brain was being transplanted where. And it's hard to deny that the image, the physical image of Cushing, the spare, wiry uh, features, uh, and the creator of Frankenstein, this is Bride of Frankenstein, Dr. Pretorius, were remarkably similar. This is the illustration that Time Magazine used uh, for in 1939 for their article about Cushing. And here he is with a guest inspecting the dressings just as Dr. Pretorius is doing here. The other famous neurosurgeons at the time really didn't look the role. So if you wanted somebody out of central casting for a mad scientist, it was gonna have to be Harvey Cushing. And so Cushing's uh, image and the image of the mad scientist became more closely and closely approximated. And the portrayal of Cushing in the popular press became more and more like a mad scientist. So in 1936, Time's Brain Man article uh, described Cushing, after finishing training as penetrating the wilderness, his inspiration burned with icy clarity, reticent and aloof, he made few friends but lived for medicine. Phenomenal labors, hard, factual, never unbent, a cold, reticent perfectionist. His wife tricked him into going into a coming out party. He marched around the revolving doors, marched out, and drove home to his work. Whereas the real Cushing founded two societies, the Society for Clinical Surgery and the Society of Neurological Surgeons that exist today. Here's the Harvey Cushing Society, its first meeting, a society named after him. Cushing enjoyed nothing more than doing an operation where he had dozens of surgeons watching. He was a very social individual. How about the specimen collection? We, we met that in Melville's uh, ship surgeon, Cadwallader Cuticle. 
Uh, and it's, of course, also a feature of the mad scientist. Here you see the young uh, Frankenstein assistant choosing between uh, normal and abnormal brains. Do not use this brain. But Cushing, being a man of steel and ice, when he struck an unanticipated problem, wouldn't confer with others. He only rubbed his hands together. And then in many cases, the brain itself was filed or preserved in a glass jar for other surgeons to come uh, view. He collected some 2,000 brain tumors, which he stored in bottles. And of course, this is the um, material from which Yale's uh, Cushing uh, collection has been assembled. It, it, it existed in real life. Here it was seen before restoration in the basement uh, of one of the medical school dormitories. And here it is as it's displayed today, as uh, rejuvenated by Chris Wall, who was a medical student at the time. And nowadays, even uh, today in films, if you're gonna transplant a brain or even just thoughts from one person to another for an evil purpose, you need a neurosurgeon. So Michael Crichton, who was a Harvard medical student, didn't finish, I believe, uh, wrote The Terminal Man, in which a man was connected to a computer with disastrous results shown here. Uh, these two are examining a brain. Uh, this one is the brain that wouldn't die. All of these involve neurosurgeons as the, as the technical uh, accomplishers. And as recently as 2019, if you have an astrophysicist who's dying of an incurable disease and you want to transplant his thoughts into a homeless boy who doesn't really understand the procedure, the person who's going to do it is a neurosurgeon. So what, are, what can we conclude from this, uh, this uh, mess, mess of material? Um, I think first you can see that even within the confines of, of orthodox surgical practice, there has always been a diversity of what was actually done to the patient, just as there is today. And we, we tend to overlook that when we think about the past. There was a pre-anesthesia era and a post-anesthesia era. There was a pre-Listerian era and a post-Listerian era. And they're sharply divided and defined. But it was never really so, just like it isn't today. Surgical habits and personalities of the past can be at least partially recaptured from appropriate sources. And uh, the sources that took me weeks to run down in those uh, library corridors are now all scanned in online. I think every single comment that I found uh, can be found online through Google Books or through HathiTrust. The surgical image sometimes functions as a plot device in popular literature and film, and I think we have to admit that this is not infrequently to our disadvantage. And finally, with increasing digitation of sources and the upcoming use of AI tools uh, to collect them, to explore them, and to provide explanations, uh, similar and better research has already become easier to perform, and I hope uh, to see plenty of it at this meeting in coming years. So thank you for your attention, and again, it's been a, a tremendous honor for me to deliver this lecture. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.